0: Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Now, if you're uh, just joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a nine-year series on the book of Ephesians, (laughs) making good headway. We are uh, studying through the book of Ephesians, and each week we've been asking this question as we come together, what does this letter to the book of Ephesians tell us about what it means to become a community of grace, or to become more of a community of grace? Before we jump into our text for this morning, um, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we pray that you would shed light on this text for us. We are hopelessly lost without that. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word. We are in need of a word from you. Be with us now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21 and going through verse 33. It's on page 978 of your Pew Bibles. So let's read our text. Again, picking up with Ephesians 5, verse 21 in mid sentence. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I got ready to stand up to preach. My wife said, you know, it's clear that nobody gave any advice on what to preach on your first year in a church, so uh, this is one of those texts. (laughs) This is one of those texts. We laugh because I I know that as we come to this text and we even look at some of the words that appear here, submit. Submit. Wives, there's there's already at least for half of us there's this underlying fear of 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 what's going to be said. Okay, let me set us up for this. We're going to spend two weeks on this passage. Uh, the title of today's sermon, Wives in the Dance of Marriage. Next week is Husbands in the Dance of Marriage. This passage is obviously a whole, and the sermons for this week and next week have to be taken together. So please know that we are talking about one half of this today, and you need to see it as a whole. If you're a visitor. I'm sorry, you're now bound to come back next week. <laughs> or, or at least get online and listen to it online. Or at least spend time this week looking at the rest of the passage. But know that what we're talking about, it takes two weeks to cover. Um, and there's some things, there's a lot we're going to cover today. Some things we have to assume. And here's one of the things that we're going to assume. I'm, I'm going to assume a definition of marriage. So I'm going to give it to you right now. It doesn't say everything about marriage. But it does say something. Marriage is about ministry. It's about bringing all of your gifts your abilities, your energy to the good of your spouse in order to serve your spouse. Okay, that's what both partners in a marriage do, husbands and wives. They minister to each other. They bring all their strength, all their wisdom, all that they have to offer for the good of the other. That's true of both sides of marriage. Um, You can tell from the title, we're going to use sort of an overall illustration for what marriage looks like. We're going to compare it to a dance. Now that strikes terror in the heart of many of us because if you're like me, you can't dance. In spite of maybe a couple attempts in your life to actually learn how to dance, um, when I was in sixth grade, I don't know if this still exists. This might be a complete cultural, you know, uh, leftover that still exists in some parts of the South. But in sixth grade, my parents signed me up for these these dance cl- these dance cla- their dance classes. Okay, but it was for. <laughs> You know, but it's geared for sixth graders in Nashville, Tennessee, where I grew up. And it was called, the name of the the class was called Fortnightly, which was intended to make it sound sort of regal, but it just means every two weeks. So we met every two weeks. It sounded better than two weekly. So Fortnightly, so every two weeks we'd get together and they would teach us different aspects of ballroom dance. Again, something that for many of us is is not a part of our cultural heritage. Um, Well, here's one of the things that stuck with me. An ability to dance did not stick with me, but here's one thing that did stick with me, that if you're going to learn certain kinds of dance, for example, if you're going to learn how to waltz. In a waltz, one person dances forward and one person dances backwards. and One person leads and one person follows. Now, there might be a lot of ways we can imagine that people could dance together. A lot of different ways. But if you're going to dance a waltz, then you're going to dance that way. One person is going to dance forwards and one's going to dance backwards, one's going to lead and one's going to follow. And what we're looking at today and, tomorrow, and to, today and next Sunday is that in this passage in Ephesians, Paul is telling us about God's view of what marriage is and that it is a dance and it's a certain kind of dance and the steps are made to be danced in a certain way. Again, this week we're looking at wives and the dance of marriage. And this morning we're going to talk about um, the, the fact that there are gender roles in the Bible. I can see the red flags going up for some people in your mind. There are gender roles in the Bible, and that the Bible calls wives to submit. Okay, red flags going up. <laughs> Next week, husbands in the dance of marriage. A husband's called to love and the mystery of marriage that Paul talks about in this passage. So again, these two sermons have to be welded together. We have to look at them um, together. Now, you know, I open with a couple jokes, and they're, they're the easy jokes because when we talk about this topic, it, it does make us a little nervous and wanting to laugh. Um, And the reason is because there's a lot of baggage for a lot of us as we talk about this topic. Um, When we hear the word submission, what many of us hear is oppression or women are doormats or this incredible inequality in the way Christians think men and women are supposed to interact together. for wives you know, you, you, or women in this congregation, you, you might have one of two reactions. Maybe you hear this and all you can think is outmoded, outdated. okay, Ways people are supposed to g- interact with each other in the first century that have now been done away with. Or maybe this is your reaction, one of many. Um, maybe, maybe you're nervous about talking about this because you're afraid that I'm going to say something this morning that's going to make your life at home or your marriage more difficult for you than it already is. And I certainly hope that's not the case. Now, husbands, you might be thinking something like this. You know, my wife really needs to hear this sermon. <laughs> Wait until next week. <laughs> this gun has two barrels. Okay. What we're going to see in this passage over this week and next week is that this passage says a lot to challenge both men and women in marriage. Okay, now, again, we said there's a lot to cover. We're talking about wives and the dance of marriage. We're going to look at three things this morning. The foundation of submission, the call to submission, and the power for submission. Foundation of submission, the call to submission, and the power for submission. Okay, first, the foundation of submission. Um, What the Bible has to say about gender roles. Look at verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and it is himself its savior. Okay, he uses this interesting term here. The husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? Obviously, he's, he's, he's bringing up the image of a body. He talks about a head, but, but what does it mean? Well, in the book of Ephesians, um, when Paul uses this, and he's used it in a couple other places, the concept of headship has authority built into it. It's an authority word. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 20 through 23, I'll read it, but if you want to look back, we've already talked about it a number of weeks ago. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's he saying? God put all things under the feet of Christ, the head of the church. He's talking about Christ being the head, being the authority. He is our authority as a church. Another uh, verse that bears on this, 1 Corinthians 11.3, in a different context, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. When Paul talks about head, he's bringing into, into view the notions of authority. Now, where, where does this headship come from? Okay, If that's true, where does it come from? Well, when Paul takes up this topic in a number of other places in Scripture, he goes back to creation. He goes back to the way we are created to talk about headship. Um, I'm not going to read these verses, but I'll just make reference if you want to jot them down. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. In First Timothy 2, 11 through 13, Paul's dealing with associated images, and both times he goes back and says something like verse 13 of 1 Timothy, where he says, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Okay, he go, takes us back to the first couple chapters of Genesis and says, we have to go back there if we're going to talk about what it means to be husbands and wives. Okay, Flip back with me. We're going to take a look at two places in Genesis 1 and 2. The first is Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 through 28. This is the big picture view of creation. Here's Listen to what God says in uh, Genesis 1, chapter 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Just a couple things I want to point out about this. talks about the creation of mankind. And what does he say? That mankind is created in the image of God. That we reflect God, something about him, his image, uniquely among all creation. That we are his representatives on earth. And that we show the world who our God is. We reflect his image. And what this passage teaches us is that men and women, male and female, image God equally and together. It says he creates man in his image. He creates them, male and female. That men and women are equally Bears of God, God's image and somehow mysteriously here even we image God more fully together that male and female more fully we reflect something about who God is and this is vitally important because scripture from the start tells us that men and women are created in absolute equality in value and worth and status we all image God And notice that both men and women are given the mandate to rule over the world. He says, to them, he says, go subdue this world. Take care of it. Nurture it. Bring it to its fullness. Have dominion over it. He gives us, as men and women together, the responsibility to image him and to be his vice regents, to be his kings with a small K and queens with a small Q over his creation that he's put in our care. Okay this means that there are no second class citizens in the world between men and women that together we are given this incredible dignity and this incredible picture of us being created in God's image incredible value okay so we are created equal given the same value now scripture also says that within that we have different roles and to say that we have different roles is not to say this, is not the same thing as to say that we have different value Okay, look with me at, a, at Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. God has just created Adam out of the dust of the earth and given him this word about not eating of the tree. And then picking up at verse 18, the Lord God said, and he says something remarkable. Through this first uh, chapter and a half of Genesis, every time God creates something, he says it is good, it is good, it is good. Look what he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. From the very beginning in creation, men and women are created equally, but they're also created differently. And they're created also with a different role. Look at the word that's used for Eve, in both for verse 18 and verse 20. It says, it says, he looks at Adam and he says, there was, there was no helper that was fit for him. The Bible teaches that wives are created as helpers for husbands. Now, it matters what, it matters what helper means. Do we take offense at that, or do we embrace it? It all depends on what helper means. Okay, if you picture, when you hear helper, if you picture, you know, daddy's little helper uh, that comes along. For instance, um, one of our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter's responsibilities in the house is when we make macaroni and cheese, she's the one who stands up in the chair and mixes it together after I've gotten it started for her. Okay, Caroline, do you want to come help me? Yes, come help me. Now, at some point in our lives, Caroline is going to be a great helper around the house. Anyone at two and a half, it's more of an expenditure than a help, right? <laughs> right. We're, t- we're teaching her how to help, but, but, but what happens? If that's your image, this sort of um, dismissive or unequal picture of, oh, come be my little helper, come help stir the macaroni, then of course you're going you're gonna to find great offense in this. But this word helper, um, Hebrew word here is ezer. okay, and then here's why that's important. This word, other than right here, occurs about 17 other times in the Old Testament. And every one of those times, except for three, it refers to God and his relationship to Israel, his people. Often in a military context, that God is the helper of his people. In those three other times, it refers to other nations that Israel looks to for military aid. Okay, the word helper in the Old Testament is a word of strength. If you're going to go to another army and look for help, who are you going to go to? Are you going to go to the one that is weak and helpless? Or are you going to go to the one that is strong and can come to your rescue? When uh, the word is used of God, it talks about God coming in magnificently to enable, to save, to rescue his people. This word helper, Azer, is an ally. It's a strength. And if you're wise, you look for allies that bring all the strength you can imagine into your relationship. And when God says that that's what he was looking for for Adam, he was looking for a perfect fit, someone that was going to stand with him, that was going to have gifts that he needed, strengths that he needed and didn't have in order to fulfill the purposes that God has laid out for both of them together. If you remember Adam, God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. And if the texts were different, we could just as easily say it's not good for women to be alone. That We are created to be bonded together. Another important point just to make from Genesis here, these roles stem from creation. Chapters 1 and 2, not from chapter 3, where the fall happens and everything falls apart. Okay. After the fall, after Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, then everything in the world is broken. Our work is broken. Our relationships are broken. Our marriages struggle deeply. To make these pieces fit together, but the point I just want to make is that this this distinction comes from creation, not the fall. We have trouble now because of the fall, but it goes back to something about the way we were created to be. Now, coming back to Ephesians in the New Testament, back in our verse in verse 23, Paul is saying that husbands are the head of their wives. Now, I have not said a word about what that means yet. Okay, so keep in mind you're. You're already plugging in your assumptions about what that is, good or bad. But this is Paul's argument that the husband is the, is the head of the wife. Now, that's the foundation of submission. Let's look at the call to submission, the biblical command we have here. This is in verse 22, 24, and 33. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a technical grammatical discussion again because if you've done some reading on this, you know this is an important hinge. Verse 21, you know, as we talked about this passage two weeks ago, we talked about the main verb in this occurring earlier in the passage where it says, be filled by the Holy Spirit in verse 18. Paul gives this command, be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then he gives these participles, these verbs that are expressions of that. Um, Verse 19, 20, addressing one another with spiritual songs, singing, making melody, giving thanks. And then verse 21, submitting to one another. Okay, the command was to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And he says, one way that that is manifested is by submitting to one another. Now, when you get to verse 22 and it says, wives, submit to your own husbands, that verb submit is not in the Greek text, okay? It is in verse 21, submitting. So you read, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, literally you get to verse 22 and it says, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay, now I've just told you a lot. Here's the significance of that. Some people will look at this verse and say, Verse 21 is this command for all Christians to submit to one another. It's this mutual submission. And they say because the passage starts that way, then when you get down to husbands and wives, Paul could have said and should have said, and we can plug in and husbands submit to your wives. Okay, there are people that take that line of argumentation on it. Um, I'm going to point just a couple problems with that just to... Point out as we think through this. Paul goes on in submission to talk about two more relationships: children and their parents, and servants and their masters. Okay. Now, if you take that logic through the rest of the passage, what sense does it make to say, children, you need to obey and submit to your parents, and parents, you need to obey and submit to your children. You know, servants, you need to obey and submit to your masters. Masters, you need to submit and obey to your um, to your servants. It doesn't fit the logic of the of the passage. Let me simply say this. I think what's happening as we move from verse 21 to 22 is that Paul does give this general picture of what life in the body of Christ is, submitting to one another. And then he says, let me tell you about three specific instances of what that looks like in the family of God. Okay, and the first one that we're coming to is, he says, wives submitting to their husbands. Now, this word for submission in Greek, it has the connotation of of hierarchy. Not of worth, not of value, of ordering, that there's an ordering in our relationships. Okay, now, every time the Bible talks about the relationship of husbands and wives in this kind of detail, it always uses this word for submit for what wives are to do that are husbands. Um, I'm not going to go to each of these passages, but if you want to look them up later, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3.1, Titus 2.4 and the verses following that, all use this same word. Okay, notice we still have said what it means. Okay, here's what submission is not. A couple things. One, submission is not unconditional obedience. Okay, let's take sort of the most extreme example. Are wives supposed to submit to their husbands in any and everything their husband might tell them? In sin? In doing something illegal? In doing something immoral? Are, husband, are wives supposed to submit to their husbands in that? the answer is, of course not. Because a wife's submission never trumps her allegiance to Christ. Now, let me give you an example. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, Paul lays out out this argument, and he says that as citizens, we are to be submitted to our government because God has put that government over us. We're to submit to our government. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. When he says, let every person be subject to, same word, submit to. But if you think back to a story in Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 29, Jesus gives his apostles, his disciples, in fact, this command to go and make disciples of all nations. And he sends them out to preach the gospel. And the Jewish authorities rightful legal authorities over them, pull them aside and say, you must stop this, and they send them back out. And they don't stop. They continue to preach. And so the uh, religious authorities send soldiers to go pick the disciples up, and they bring them in and question them, and they say this, Ephesians 5, or excuse me, Acts 5, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, does Peter know he's supposed to obey the government that's placed over him? Of course he does. But he knows that he has to bow the knee to a higher law. And when that law goes against God's law, he has to resist. And it's the same principle for a submission in marriage. When a husband asks you to do something that is clearly sin, you are not to follow. Okay, not absolute obedience and everything. Here's the second thing. Submission does, is not a license for abuse. Okay? If a wife is abused by her husband, does submission mean that she should simply take it, uh, take the abuse as part of her role in marriage? No. Marriages are meant to be ministry to each other. It means each partner bringing their strength, their gifts, all that they have to the table for the good of another. And for a wife to acquiesce in the abuse of her husband, it's not to serve him, but it is to harm him. That is for his harm and not his good. Uh, Among several things I read and listened to as I was preparing for this, I heard a series of talks by Tim and Kathy Keller. Kathy gave a great example of this, a response. Um, She said, "What what should an abused wife do in that situation? Call the police. Loving your husband in a situation like that where you're being physically abused means restraining your husband from something that is harmful both to you and to him. You are ministering to your husband by not allowing him to sin. Now, again, I know we're talking about an extreme example. But let me just say this. Wives, if you're in a situation, a marriage that's abusive, God's call for you to submit to your husband is not a call to silently and secretly suffer abuse. If you are in danger, call the police. And if there is abuse in your home or your marriage, call the elders of your church. And let us get involved. Seek help for you, for your husband, for your marriage. Because in a situation like this, submitting to your husband, using your strength to be his ally, to minister to your husband, here it means, for a situation like this, it doesn't mean obeying your husband, but rather opposing him for his own good. Okay, again, extreme examples, but there are a few things that submission is not. Here's what submission is, or a few thoughts on it. Two ways to look at it. Submission is action and it's attitude. Okay, action and attitude. Let's look at the actions of submission, verses 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Okay, that's an incredibly important part of the verse. This is not a blanket statement for women to submit to men. Or for wives to submit to every man. This is not a statement of how all women are supposed to relate to all men. This puts this teaching in a very particular context. Wives, you are to submit to your own husbands. What's he saying? This marriage relationship is supposed to be a safe place for us to be men and women as God created us to be. Of all the relationships in your life, this is a place where you're supposed to be most free. And it's supposed to be most life-giving. This is the one where you're created to dance in the context of a marriage to your own husbands. Now, the second thing he says, verse 23, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands in everything as the church submits to Christ. Now, in everything. We've covered some things that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean in blatant sin. It doesn't mean in an abuse. Um, In in everything doesn't mean every possible thing your husband might ask you. In everything means in every area of your life. Okay, there's no part of life for a husband and wife that is unconnected or that's independent. Okay, that simply fits what marriage is. It's a bonding of two people. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, socially. Everything's intertwined now. If you're married, this relationship, it pervades every aspect of your life. And if you're thinking about getting married, know that's what you're getting into. It is your whole life now intertwined with somebody else. So when she says, when Paul says submit in everything, he's talking about every aspect of your life. Now again, we're not talking about husbands really until next week, but let me just point out that this cuts both ways. Okay, there are very stiff commands in here for husbands. And this means... Uh, that husbands are called into a relationship, as we'll talk next week, of love for their spouse in everything. Okay, there's um, actions of submission. There's also attitude of submission. Two places. Look at verse 22, second half of that. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay, now, Paul is not saying that the hu- your husband is your Lord. Okay? What he is saying is that as you are submitting to your husband, you are looking to the Lord. This is one aspect of you following your Lord. It is one way in which wives work out their calling to follow Jesus by submitting rightly to their husbands. Okay, now the second thing about the attitude of submission, um, you don't pick this up in English, but it is in the Greek. The verse here, The verb here for submitting, it's in what's called the middle voice. Okay, there's active voice, middle voice, and passive voice in Greek. Active voice, you do an action. Passive voice, you receive an action. Middle voice is reflexive. Okay, so that means that you're doing something yourself. So when the wives are called to submit, it says, submit yourself to your husbands. He's calling women as individual believers and as free, responsible, moral agents to voluntarily do this. It's a call to submit. It is freely given. Okay, now husbands, you need to hear this because this sermon is for your information. It is not for your application. In this particular sense, there's never any room to turn to your wife and say, submit to me. Nowhere in scripture does it ever tell or authorize a husband to say that. It does tell a husband to love his wife. We'll talk more about that next week. But what does this, the significance I think is that, that he turns to the wives and he says, submit yourselves to your husband's. Submit yourself. Step into this. Let me say this, too. Just as there are some very obvious ways in which your husband might ask you to do something that you know you shouldn't do, it's sin. At the same time, just to counterbalance that, um, and without taking away from it, uh, submitting doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to always agree. We'll get to that more in a minute. But if submitting does, does mean something, well, I think one thing for many wives you have to be careful of is um, labeling anything you don't agree with as egregious sin. And so, you, of course, you can't follow him. Okay? So there's things to watch on both sides of that. And then the second part of this attitude, one is as to the Lord, that's our attitude. Second thing is verse 23, as he sums up um, this teaching, excuse me, verse 33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Part of the attitude of submission is that we... Uh, that we well as that wives he says specifically come to their husbands with an attitude of respect and we'll talk about how that plays out again in more in a minute. okay now here's the million dollar question. How in the world does this play out in an actual marriage? okay? What does this actually mean? what's the take home application? okay In all the listening to things I've done in the past week or two and all the reading I've, I've found very little that wanted to nail this down. There's some wisdom in this. Let me give you a couple thoughts, though. Um, and this is what most folks come back to. Uh, submission includes but is not limited to tie-breaking. Okay, if you've heard any teaching on this at all, you've, heard, you've, you've talked about or heard about the tie-breaking situation, right? Okay, what happens when your husband and wife are together and they're, they're trying to make a decision about something and they just, they just can't come to agreement about it? Now, some people might want to take the out and say, well, if you can't come to agreement on something, well, then you just don't make the decision. But you know how many d- situations in our lives demand a decision? You know, to not decide is to make a decision of its own, right? I mean, you can think of millions of this in your life, but I mean, just, uh, you know, think about, um, oh, the situation of one, one spouse is offered a job in a different city. And as a couple, you now have to decide, are you going to follow that job opportunity or are you going to stay? Okay, there's no not making that decision. Okay, you either, as a couple, you either go or you stay. Let's say your children are getting older and you're trying to decide what to do about educating them. Are you going to homeschool them? Are you going to put them in a private school? Are you going to put them in a public school? What are you going to do? You have to do something or the Department of Social Services will come after you, right? You, you, you have to educate your children. You have to make a decision. Now, how should those decisions be made? Um, if marriage is about two people ministering to each other, stepping into life together, sharpening each other, bringing all of their strengths, their gifts, their wisdom to bear, then um, at times those discussions ought to be pretty lively. Right? If you're inviting your wife as you should in to come to you with all the all the gifts that she brings, then it is going to be a process of hammering out those disagreements. Because you know how many situations you get into where at least initially you start off on completely different ends of the argument. It's gonna take a lot of work to wrestle this out. And let me say this clearly, most decisions in your marriage, if your marriage is healthy, ought to look an awful lot like real consensus. It ought to be that. But there are times when you're like, we've heard each other out. We've listened to the arguments. We've tried to pray through it and love each other through it. And a decision has to be made, and we're still on different ends of the decision. And there are situations where there has to be a tiebreaker. There has to be. And part of this teaching is that God has given husbands the responsibility of bearing that responsibility Now, again, we're going to talk a lot about that next week from the husband's point of view. This has nothing to do with getting your own personal preference. It has everything to do with doing what you can to wisely lead your family. Okay, so tie-breaking is an actual example of what happens, and I would just encourage you that that tie-breaking kind of situation, you know, when, when it comes down to it, I think in most healthy marriages, that ought to be a relatively infrequent thing that it gets to that point. Okay, that's one action that, that comes up in in the context of what does it mean to submit. But the fact that submission is an attitude, I think broadens kind of what we can say about it. It gives us a broader scope in our marriage. It gives marriage a particular flavor. Christ calls wives to season their marriage, as we said, with respect for their husbands. Okay, can you imagine a healthy marriage that didn't involve the wife respecting her husband? Do you know any good, mutually satisfying marriages in which the wife doesn't respect her husband? Of course not. If marriage is going to be what it's meant to be, then this this deep union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, then how can that flourish without wives respecting their husbands? That's part and parcel of good relating. Again, Paul has a lot to say for the men's side of things, but he does say this about the women. Um, and we see clearly, I think, too, something about this attitude of submission and this comparison that, that Paul makes between our marriages and submitting to Christ. Okay, it says that you are to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? Only when we're at loggerheads and we need a tiebreaker, Jesus gets the winning vote, You know, is that what it means for us as a church to submit to Christ? Of course not. Submitting to Christ as a church brings our whole hearts, our whole attitude, a sense of respect and care and love and trust. You know, when you think about us as a church submitting to Christ, that we know from the pages of Scripture that he has brought us as the church into a relationship that is honored and valued and the highest one in the universe between a creature and their creator. he says if we're to submit as the church submits to Christ, that implies um, an attitude of submission that is joyful and willing. Now, submission is going to look different in every marriage relationship. Okay, you would love, because I would love, some concrete examples where you said, here is the way, okay, here it is from on high, here is the way submission is supposed to work out in your marriage and all the details. Okay, I heard an example about submission uh, from one of us this week, I, and I was given permission to share the story. I, I don't want to give you the impression that anything you say to me can and will be held against you in a sermon. <laughs> it's true, but I don't want you to know that. <laughs> so I got permission to share the story, one person was saying, here's an example I've heard, an illustration I've heard about what submission is. Um, she said, here's what I heard, that, that submission, it's like sled dog teams, okay? So you got a sled dog team, and there's a lead dog in the first part of the harness of the team, and the sled dog driver is driving the team, and the sled dog driver says, go right, and the lead sled dog goes left. So what does a sled dog driver do? He gets out of the sled, and he comes around, and he he talks to whatever he does. He talks to the lead dog, and he says, I didn't say left, I said right, go right. So then he goes and gets back in the sled, and they take off, and this time he says, um, go left, and the lead dog goes right instead. But this time, the dog right behind him says, I'm not following him. <laughs> you know, the sled dog driver said, Go left, I'm going left. Okay, now what does a sled dog driver do? He gets out and he comes to the second dog and he reprimands that dog for not following the lead dog. Okay, and this is an example of submission in our marriages. Okay, this is a bad example at many levels. Um, <laughs> for one thing, neither you nor I want to be sled dogs. Um, but if that's your but if that's your picture of what submission is, that it's simply the husband is the lead dog, and regardless of what happens, I just follow him. All I, have to, I don't have to turn my brain off, I just have to I just have to watch him and go in his direction. And then we've completely missed what the the beauty of the of the relationship of marriage that God has created for our good and for the empowering of our lives that we would honor him, that together husbands and wives would image God, that we would have a relationship that is the most intimate thing that we can know between two people on this planet. That is not, sled dogs are not the picture of that. So what is it? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts. Whatever, what, however this works out in your marriage, it can't be boiled down to a simple few rules, and it can't be boiled down to a simple few, few culturally bound examples. Okay? This passage says nothing about who is going to keep the checkbook in your family. And it says nothing about who's going to work outside the home in your family. It says nothing about who's going to be the primary caregiver of your children. It says nothing about who's going to be responsible for mopping the floors. Um, when, when I speak about what the Bible says about gender roles in the Bible, it's talking about this kind of relationship, not the way that might play out in some stereotypical roles in any given society. Okay, Just to give you a couple personal examples, my wife and I certainly don't do this perfectly, but, but over the years, there have been times in our marriage when I was a primary breadwinner and she was in school. There have been times in our marriage when I was in school and she was the one out earning money. There have been times when we've both been doing that. There are times when my wife is staying home taking care of our children and there are days when I'm doing that. When I was in seminary, I did most of the grocery shopping and a good bit of the cleaning. Not enough, my wife will tell you, but a good bit of the cleaning. <laughs> yep. A lot of those responsibilities are more my wife's at this season in our life. Okay, submitting to each other doesn't say anything about how that may work out in those specifics, but it says everything about how you as a husband and a wife go into all those decisions together, how you're going to go into your life together as a team working together, using your strengths for each other's good. Now, briefly, very briefly, let me say one last thing, the power for submission. Christ is the ultimate reference point for your submission wives. Brian Chappell, in his book, Each for the Other, gives a helpful illustration. He says, as if, as you look at your husband, you are always looking over your husband's shoulder to Christ, the one who stands behind your marriage. You're always looking past your husband to your true husband. As we all look to Christ as our true husband, as we together, the bride of Christ, look to our bridegroom Christ, he is the one that we fix our eyes in. Where are you going to find the strength to even try to step into this? Where are you going to find the ability to even trust that your life is not going to be squelched in this? Only by looking past your husband over his shoulder to the shoulder of, beyond his shoulder to Christ himself. And Christ himself lived a life of submission for us. That Christ himself submitted himself to the Father. 1 Corinthians 11.3, a verse that we read earlier, talked about God being, the Father being the head of Christ. That Christ himself, equal to the Father, in glory and majesty in being and essence, nevertheless steps into this role of deference to the Father. Did that take away from Christ's glory? Did it take away from his majesty? Did it take away from his value and his beauty? No, it only added to it. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22, as he's wrestling with this task the Father has given him to do. He says, if there is any way, please take this cup from me. But if not, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus' submission to the Father's will is the very thing that bought us salvation to begin with. Of Christ submitting himself, going to a cross that he might die, that we might live. So wives, what do you look to in the middle of the reality of living a life of submission? You look to your Savior Jesus who submitted himself for all of us. The one who has to, will, meet you in the middle of the real situations of your marriage. Marriage is to be this bond of sharing our strength for the good of each other. And part of that, Scripture says, is that wives would submit to their husbands. And again, Next week, we're going to talk about what does that mean for husbands. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord Jesus, we give you glory and honor and praise and thanks that you submitted yourself to death that we might live. Father, we lift up this passage and this teaching and pray that you would open our eyes that we might know how to apply this in our lives, guard us from harmful application. Lord Jesus, you are our bridegroom. We need you. We pray that you would rush to meet us in our marriages, that they would flourish, that they would glorify you, and that they would bring out all the gifts, all the strengths, all the abilities, all the beauty of both halves of a marriage. Let me lift this up to you in Jesus' name.